0: Well, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 24. Acts, chapter 24, is where we are uh, this morning, and uh, we've been moving through the book of Acts. If you're new here, this is your first or first couple of Sundays. We've been in the book of Acts for a long time, moving, moving our way through. And if you've been here for a while, you've noticed we've been moving more quickly through this portion of the book of Acts as we come towards the close. There are only 28 chapters in this book, and we're in uh, chapter 24. going to cover the whole chapter, actually, today. And there's a reason for that, you know, it's not because we're trying to hurry and trying to get done before a certain time, it's because the, the passages of Scripture are more lengthy and uh, whereas earlier in the book you would have a series of events that would happen quickly and just a short uh, block of verses attributed to them, now it seems as though the events are happening a little more spread out, large blocks of Scripture that are attributed to them and so we're moving a little quickly, a little more quickly now as we uh, find our way in chapter 24 this morning in the book of Acts, and so glad you're here. I hope you'll really lock in. I believe that the uh, message we're going to look at this morning is one that applies to every one of us. For some, we'll have a trail of testimonies as to how we failed to apply the truth we're going to look at this morning, and others of you are right in the midst of needing what we're going to see today, what we're going to see demonstrated, and uh, you'll have a You'll have a decision to make this morning as we look at this chapter in the book of Acts. And so uh, I'm glad that you are here. Well, let me ask a question real quickly. If you were, say, for, for the, the sake of illustration, you're traveling down the roadway. You've, uh, you're traveling in your vehicle. You've just come over the bridge, right? You're headed into Savannah through Thunderbolt, and uh, you've got a list of things to do. It's early in the morning. You've got your, uh, your agenda. You've got your, you know, your items that you want to knock off, errands to run. And just as you come over that bridge, you see that red light on your dashboard come up that says, uh, check engine. It's your check engine light, right? And so that check engine light comes on. Let me ask you this question. You see it, it's glowing, you've got a list of things to do. Do you, A, find the closest service center where you can pull over, get it checked, and even if it means an all-day repair, you'll, you'll be willing to scrap your day and get it repaired right there on the spot? Or do you finish your list of things... And then get it checked somewhere later after you get your list of things to do. Done. All right. How many of you would just pull over right there? Closest spot. You're going to get it done. All right. Like three of you. Okay. How many of you would go ahead and you would do your whole list of items? You would knock off all your whole list. Check them all along. And then if you still got time, you'd go find a service center to get your car checked out. Find out what the thing is. All right. You can put your hands. Now, how many of you would go on vacation? After finishing your list of things to do, then you go to visit friends in Hilton Head. You just try. You know, you, all right, some of you we know you really, 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 you really need help. Now that is reflective of the fact that we often put things off. Right? It's not that we ignore. We don't just ignore warnings. I mean, come on, we got a little sense about ourselves. It's not that we ignore warnings. It's just that we have a real tendency to put them off. And to deal with them later at a time that's more convenient, it's like the fellow who has the chest pain, and the, the classic symptoms, the heaviness, the numbness down the arm, and uh, you know, everything about him tells him, i got to go to a doctor, but he puts it off and a doctor comes to see him, usually in the ER, usually in the ICU. Why? Not because he ignored the symptoms, but because he chose to put those symptoms off, and he put the warnings off to a time that he thought would be more convenient, and we do it all the time. We even do that in a spiritual sense in our lives where we know that God wants us to do something specific. We know that God has pinpointed an area of our lives may deal with our finances, with our families, with our marriage, with relationships, and the work, whatever. I mean, the the list is endless. And yet we know that God has spoken to a certain area of our lives. Maybe out of scripture, in a quiet time somewhere, we were doing our devotional, and something just really jumped out at us. Uh, Maybe it was a message we heard, or something that a friend said to us. But there's an area of our life where we know God has put his finger down, and we know he wants us to do something. And it's an issue of obedience, and it's not that we ignore God and just, and just uh, tell Him we're not going to do it as much as we say, I'll do it later. I'll do it at a time when it's more convenient. And what happens is, what, what begins as a pattern in our lives is that we begin to put off obedience. We delay obedience without even realizing the consequences that come as a result. If I took a rock and I toss it into a pool of water, you know immediately what would happen. As that rock would break the surface of that water and begin to sink, ripples would form at the point of entry, and those ripples would begin to extend outward. And like ripples that extend outward from one simple rock tossed into a pool of water, the effects of our delayed obedience also ripple out. And we're going to see this today in chapter 24 in a very powerful way. Whenever we choose to delay our obedience, that begins to ripple out. It's a ripple effect that begins as it extends outward affecting other people around us, other people that we love, other people in our lives, other people that, that are on the periphery even of our lives. See, delayed obedience brings a cost. Well, in Acts chapter 24, where we're going to see this truth demonstrated today, it's a lengthy passage of Scripture. We're going to look at every verse. We're not going to read every verse. I'm going to explain some of them for the sake of time. We're going to pull some others out that will help to clarify what we're looking at. But what we're going to see here in Acts chapter 24, I'll give you a quick summary, is that there are two key players. One is the Apostle Paul. You may be new to Christianity, you may be new to reading scripture, you may be brand new to, whole, to the whole church thing. You wonder, who's this Paul fellow? Well, if you, if you read earlier in the book of Acts, around chapter 9, he, he'll pop in earlier, but chapter 9 is where he really comes to center stage. And it's in, in Acts chapter 9 that the Apostle Paul, who was once a blasphemer, once a, a very religious person, but a person who rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, in Acts chapter 9 we find that Paul receives Christ, he surrenders his life to Christ. He turns from sin and he begins to follow the Lord Jesus in a very dramatic way. And from chapter 9 on, really, Paul takes center stage in the book of Acts. Well, in chapter 24, Paul is going to be one of the key players. And there's a second key player, one you've probably not heard of so often. His name is Felix. Let me tell you a little bit about Felix. We'll get to him again later. But Felix is a governor here in chapter 24. He's the governor. He is a Roman governor of the region of Judea. And it's in that region of Judea that everything is unfolding here in chapter 24. So you got the Apostle Paul, Christian, sold out to Christ, and then you've got the uh, Roman governor, uh, Felix, who is not a Christian. He's not a follower of Christ. Well, if you remember from last week at the end of chapter 23, the Apostle Paul had been basically rescued because his life was in danger uh, by the Jews there in that area around Jerusalem. Well, for the sake of safety, what they did was they took Paul, the Romans did, they rescued Paul from, uh, from the Jewish uh, folks that were against him, and they carted Paul off under the cover of night. Almost 500 military personnel, the Bible tells us, that were needed to get Paul to safety, 65 miles away to a city called Caesarea. Well, as chapter 24 opens up, we find that Paul is in the city of Caesarea. He's being held in custody, awaiting a Roman trial, basically. And as was customary in the first century, a Roman trial would consist of the prosecution, the defense, and then a verdict. And so Paul is here in Caesarea. He's awaiting his trial to take place. The high priest, along with some other religious leaders from Jerusalem, have traveled 65 miles to Caesarea. They're going to bring these charges. When they get there to Caesarea, they hire a lawyer named Tertullus. You'll see him come up here in just a second. And they hire Tertullus to bring these charges against Paul before the Roman governor, Felix. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, hopefully you didn't lie. All right, so we open up chapter 24, Paul on trial before Felix, the governor, and let's see what it is that, it, that, that, uh, that begins. Let's, let's pick up in verse 2, chapter 24, verse 2. It says, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace, he's speaking to Felix the governor, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. He's pretty flowery in his speech, this lawyer named Tertellus. Verse 4, he says, But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. So he's making his introductory remarks. Let me just pause there for a moment. And shape a little bit of what Tertullus has said in regards to this governor named Felix. Because most of all that he says there in those first three verses is, could not be further from the truth. You see, history tells us a little bit about Felix, this governor. And he was not as Tertullus described him. There are no reforms in any point of history that are, have ever been attributed to Felix, this governor. In fact, there's a first century historian, his name was Josephus. He wrote outside of scripture, but his words, though they're not inspired, are helpful from a historical perspective. Josephus tells us a little bit about Felix in history, and he says that Felix was brutal. <laughs> he says that he was not a peaceable person. The Jews absolutely hated him, and he was incompetent at what he did. And so this Roman governor, Felix, whom this lawyer is just really fluffing up to be some majestic being, could not have been further from that. No reforms attributed to his name. He was one of the least peaceable governors in Roman history. In fact, two years after this event took place, he was removed by Nero. You heard of Nero, right? He was removed by Nero, taken back to Rome because of the way he handled an incident there in his district in a very brutal way. So he was extremely incompetent. And so you've got this lawyer against Paul who's laying out basically three charges against Paul before Felix the governor. All this is so important to where we're going to end up. And as he lays out these three charges, Paul then begins to make his defense. Well, let's just get a sense of what the charges are. Look down in verse, uh, verse 5. He says, For we found this man a real pest. <laughs> that's, that's an interesting way to describe Paul. I bet he kind of bowed up a little bit. Like, what? A pest. In the Greek language, by the way, that word pest translates as pest. He says, And he is also a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Now, here, here's the problem. Because this lawyer, on the, on behalf of the Jews, us, he's bringing three charges against Paul. All three of them false, by the way. But the first one uh, was huge. It's the only one that really affected the Romans at all. Because his first charge is that this pest, named Paul, is actually stirring up dissension and he is setting himself up as a rebel against the Roman authorities. That's a big deal to the Romans. wasn't true, but that's the first charge that he brings. Look at what it says in verse 6. He goes on to... Lay out the rest of the charge against Paul. Verse 6, it says, And he even tried to desecrate the temple, and then we arrested him. We wanted to judge him according to our own law. Well, he lays out these charges against Paul. The apostle Paul then, in verse 10, begins to rebut. He begins to uh, uh, respond to these charges. Look at what Paul says, beginning in verse 10. He says, When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded. Here's what he said to Felix. Knowing that for many years you have been a judge to this nation, that was true, he says, I cheerfully make my defense, since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went to Jerusalem to worship. Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot, nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. But this I admit to you, that according to the way, that's a reference to Christianity, which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked." Listen to what Paul says about his life. What a a statement that we can make of ourselves. He says, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. Well, he goes on to describe a little bit of what happened on that fateful event back in Jerusalem. But in a nutshell, Paul basically has just dismissed all three of these charges brought against him. Not true. Not true. He even says, where are those that initially brought the charges because they were nowhere to be found? And so the Roman trial that has taken place has now come to an end. You've had your prosecution, you've had your defense, and as was customary, it's now up to the governor, Felix, to decide. The question is, what decision will he make? He's got all the information in front of him, he's heard all the testimony, and now he has to make a choice. We'll look at what it says as we look further in this passage as to what his response would be. Look down in verse 22. It says, But Felix, having a more excellent knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias the commander comes down, I will decide your case. Well, who's this fellow, Lysias the commander? We're going to get to him in just a second. Lysias, the commander, was the person who basically rescued Paul. He was a Roman commander of the the troops there in the city of Jerusalem where all this began to unfold. And he was the one who rescued Paul, took him out of the midst of that riot to protect him, to question him. And what Felix, the governor, says here, having seen all of the evidence, having heard all of the testimony, he says, I will wait for Lysias, the commander, to get here and then I'll make my decision. In other words, when I get the story from him, that's when I'll make my choice. That's when I'll render the verdict. That's when I will decide which direction I'm going to go. But there's a problem with that. In fact, look back to chapter 23. This is huge to what we're looking at this morning. Look at chapter 23 down in verse 25. Here's the problem. Whenever Paul was transported from Jerusalem up to Caesarea to begin with for this trial, Lysias sent a letter with him. In other words, Lysias puts into place almost 500 uh, Roman troops to protect Paul. He pins out a letter, jots it out, uh, sends it up with Paul so that Felix the governor, when he gets Paul, will also get this letter. And it's his explanation of the events as they unfolded that day. And here's what the letter said. Thankfully, Luke recorded it for us in chapter 23, verse 25. And he wrote a letter having this form, Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When this man, that's Paul, was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up to them with the troops and I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and I found him to be accused over questions about their law. Here's the key. He says, but under no accusation deserving death or even imprisonment. And so the commander of the Roman troops who was there that day, he saw the whole thing unfold. He was the one who grabbed Paul and took him out to safety, took him up to the barracks to protect his own neck. He writes a letter to Felix the governor and he says, I have seen nothing in this man worthy of death or even imprisonment. In other words, he is not guilty. But because the Jews wanted him to be tried, I am sending him to you. He's passing him on with all the information that Felix the governor needs. And Felix the governor gets Paul, he hears the testimony, he reads the letter, and when he's in a position to decide to let this man go free, just let him go about his way, just send him along so he can do what he was called to do, he puts it off, verse 22 says, puts it off. And like ripples from a rock in a pool of water, delayed obedience, whether in the first century or today, more often than not, affects the innocent people around us. Look at the next verse, verse 23. In chapter 24. It says, Then he gave orders to the centurion for him, for Paul, to be kept in custody and yet, have some freedom not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. Now, that was gracious, but at the end of the day, Paul is still held captive because of Lysias, or because of Felix's unwillingness to do what was right. Well, it was customary, that passage tells us, if we look further, it was customary for Felix and his wife Drusilla to beckon for Paul often to listen to him as he would share about the Christian faith. Look at what it says in verse 24. It says, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Well, that's a shocker, isn't it? Paul talking about Jesus while he's locked up in jail. That's a real surprise, huh? Let me tell you a little bit about that whole situation. History records for us that Felix, this Roman governor, had married Drusilla when she was 16 years old. It was his third wife. He had literally stolen her from her husband at the time, taking her to himself. So he's got issues. <laughs> There's some things there that he had not done right, had never made right, that, that were unsettled in his life. Look at what it says in the next verse, verse 25. It says, but as he, Paul, was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened. You see here was this man Felix in a perfect position. Number one, he is listening to the greatest missionary communicator that ever walked this earth. And he's got the Apostle Paul right in front of him. Uh, Felix has issues in his life, sins that he's committed that need to be forgiven, need to be uh, made right. He he is in a perfect position to see, if he can only make the right decision, to see the slate wiped clean, that God would never hold against him those sins that he had committed. And and so Paul is talking to him about righteousness and his lack of it because he didn't have Christ and none of us have righteousness without Jesus. He's talking to him about the issues of self-control, which by the way are always underlying every act of sin that is committed in our lives. It's a lack of failure to demonstrate self-control. And then Paul is also talking to Felix about judgment, that these are huge issues at stake, that if we don't get it right, and if we don't place our faith in Jesus Christ, then there will come a day when we're judged for our sin. God will judge our sin and us along with it. Felix is in a perfect place. Man, he's got the opportunity to walk away from this thing absolutely forgiven because of his decision to place his faith in Jesus Christ. And yet the Bible says there in that passage, verse 25, that he became frightened. Look at the end of it. I didn't finish it yet. And here's what he said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. In other words, he knew what the right thing was to do. He knew that he needed a savior. He knew that he needed to turn from his sin. And yet this governor, with all the authority, all the power on the face of the earth, it seemed, he made the worst decision he could ever make. And whereas he could have accepted Christ, he told Paul, you just go away. And he delayed doing what was right. In fact, it's telling how we even phrase it at the end of verse 25. Go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. There is no evidence that this man Felix ever came to Christ. And he's a lot like the person driving the car with the check engine light. He's a lot like that man with the chest pains. Oh, I'm not ignoring this. I'm just going to put it off to later. As a rock in a pool of water. You know where I'm going, right? Our delayed obedience has a way of impacting those around us. Look at what it says next. Verse 26, we see a glimpse of Felix's heart. He says at the same time too, he was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he also used to send for him quite often and converse with him. See, he cared more about bribery and his own finances, his own financial gain, than he did A life surrendered to Christ, verse 27. But after two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Our delayed obedience almost always impacts those around us. You know, there's a truth that comes out of this passage In fact, when we think about delayed obedience, we have to to take it a step further. Why is delayed obedience so, so dangerous? Because there's a tendency for us to think, you know, as long as I do what's right, does God really mind when I do it? I mean, if God tells me I need to do something, I need to extend forgiveness to someone. I need to uh, uh, put away something in my life that he doesn't want there. I need to take a step of faith and I need to follow him a certain direction. Uh, God wants me to uh, uh, write a letter of encouragement to someone. Whatever that step of obedience is, uh, is it really that important that that I have to obey right that moment? And my answer is yes, it is, because here's what happens. Whenever we delay obedience to something that we know God wants us to do, what happens is this, our heart grows a little bit harder towards the things of God and a little bit more receptive towards sin. That every time we choose knowing what God wants for us and we choose to delay our obedience, not that I'm ignoring what you want for me, God. I'm just not going to do it right now. I'll do it later. I'll do it when it's convenient. I'll do it tomorrow. Whenever we do that and we know that he wants us to do something but we put him off, our heart grows a little harder and colder towards the things of God and a little more receptive and softer towards sin. If you've ever been on a diet, you know exactly how that works, right? You've done good for a week. You've done good for two weeks. You've watched what you've eaten. You've cut back on what you've eaten. And then there was that little stumble. You had that three dozen donuts from Krispy Kreme, right? You know, in like 12 minutes, they're all gone. You're nothing but glaze all, you know, nasty scene. But, you know, you're going to do better. That's what you tell yourself. But you know it's going to be much harder now. Your heart is going to be a little bit harder. It's going to be a little more difficult for you to do what's right now. And it's going to be a little more easier to be receptive towards doing what's wrong. And it's the same, I'm just saying. It's the same in relationship to doing what's right before God. And for some of you, you face huge issues of obedience that where God has put his finger on something in your life. And it's a lot more important than a box of donuts. It has everything to do with your marriage or with, your, uh, uh, with a relationship or with, uh, with perhaps even your reputation. It has everything to do with, with the big areas of your life. And God has already shown you, this is what you need to do. This is what I'm calling you to do. This is what I'm commanding you to do. And he has the authority to do that. And by the way, it's not because he's against us. It's because he loves you so greatly that he gives specific commands to your life. And he's told you, this is what you need to do. And if you put him off any longer, your heart is going to be so much more colder towards him. And so much more open, open to putting him off in the other areas of your life. And so what's the truth that we see here in this passage? What is the... What is the thing we need to take out from this passage, demonstrate in the life of this governor, Felix? Well, the truth is very simple, that we have the capacity. We can actually avoid the dangers of delayed obedience and the cost of delayed obedience by simply choosing to obey immediately. You say, Brooks, I've seen the dangers. Whenever I put God off and whenever I push him to the side, whenever I stiff-arm him and put him off till later, I've seen the cost and I've seen the danger now. How can I avoid that? You avoid it by just simply choosing to obey when you know God wants you to do something. Not rationalizing it. Not putting him off till later. But when God says, make that move, put that down, take that up, write that letter, go to that person, whatever it is that he says, you do it then. And you reap the reward. And you experience this blessing. Instead of not only bringing harm to your own life. But hurting those that are around you as well. So, so Brooks, how do, how do I position myself then to be one who is inclined to obey immediately? Because I have a real tendency to kind of put God off and I want things to be my way and, and God's really got to convince me to do what's right. Even when I know it, even when I know what he wants me to do, I have a real tendency to push him off. So how do I position myself to be one who is inclined to obey right, at the, right, right, on, right on time, immediately when he calls me? Here are four things you can do. They're not on the overhead, but just four things I want to give you real quickly that can help you to be a person who positions yourself to obey immediately, that it becomes a part of the fabric of your life, a part of your DNA, so to speak. One thing that you can do is to keep a short list of your sins as a Christian. Keep a short list of your sins. In other words, when do we commit sin? Whenever we sin as believers, we commit them one at a time, right? But how do we confess them? We confess them typically as a big block, and it's usually right before we go to sleep. <laughs> uh, oh God, forgive me for all my sins today. We, we don't go back and say, God, forgive me for chewing out that person I shouldn't have. F- forgive me for giving the cold shoulder to that other person I shouldn't have. Forgive me for uh, being prideful in this area. For, forgive me for my selfishness when I took more than I should. Know, we don't name them one by one, do we? We, we like to, uh, what's the saying? We uh, commit them retail, but we confess them wholesale. <laughs> you know, we, we, uh, you know we, we like to just commit them all you know, one at a time and, and, and uh, you know, kind of do them that way, but when it's time to confess them, oh God, just Forgive me. But keep it a short list of sins. In other words, when we, can, when we commit a sin and God convicts us in our heart, and He always does because He knows where sin leads us and it's never closer to Him, whenever He convicts us, what we do is we confess it right then. Oh, God, forgive me. Uh, forgive me for, for saying what I shouldn't have with that wrong tone of voice to that person. Uh, I accept your forgiveness. I confess that. I blew it. Help me to be strong enough next time to know and to do what's right. And that's gone. God doesn't hold it against you. Your fellowship with God is restored. There's nothing not quite right between you and God there. Your walk is close. And so as you keep a short list of sins, what that does is it keeps your fellowship where it belongs. And sin cannot take root. Number two, you can maintain a daily time with God, a daily quiet time. In other words, spending time in his word for a block of time every single day. If you came and and this was your only meal of the week and you only ate on Sunday mornings and this was it for you, man, you'd be a hurting person. You'd be in a really, really bad mood come Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, right? For some of us, it wouldn't even take that long. Why? Because we can't make it on one meal a week. We need more than that. And yet spiritually often what happens is for some, the only time you open your Bible, the only time you really engage with God in in worship and prayer and study of His Word is on a Sunday morning. And you may miss a Sunday the next week and then it becomes even longer. But whenever you spend time in God's Word consistently day by day, you might not walk away that day having seen fireworks and heard angels singing, but you know what? God is pouring into you. And when you do that consistently day by day, week by week, month by month, year by year, what happens is is that your roots begin to grow deeply. They begin to go down deep in your walk with God. And what happens is, is that you begin to see that God uses his word to speak into your life and he gives you direction. And it's as you not just read it or hear it, but you begin to live it, that you begin to see the rewards and the stability that comes from a life that responds to the truth of scripture. Psalm 1 talks all about that. And so how can I be one who responds immediately to God's voice in my life? We can be responsive. We can, we, we can maintain a close want with God. Number three, surround yourself with godly people. Surround yourself with godly people. That's not just for students. That's not just for uh, uh, elementary, middle school, high school. That's for every single one of us. Proverbs says much, that, that he who spends time with the wise will be wise himself. And it's as we spend time with people who are spending time in God's Word, who are developing a close walk with Christ, who are uh, immediately living lives of obedience as God speaks into their lives, we begin to catch a little bit of the residual of that. And we begin to to be people who also respond to God's Word. And we begin to pattern our lives after others who are obeying immediately. And then the fourth thing that we can do is that we can cultivate in our lives humility, and contentment humility that moves pride off of center stage every day because it's really the prideful heart isn't it that says god i'm not going to do this today I don't care that you spoke the the the, uh, the world into existence. I don't care that you breathed life into, into me. I don't care that I'm only here because of your design and your will. Uh, I don't really care that you're without beginning, without end. I don't care that you've even shown me clearly what you want me to do today, God. I'm going to do it later because I'm the center of my own world. You see, humility does not embrace that position. <laughs> And so when you're humble, you're immediately in position to follow God because you recognize His authority in your life. Contentment is, is fine with whatever God has chosen to give you in your life. You're not putting Him off for something better because you're, contented, or you, you're content. You're trusting of what He's already given to you. You don't need anything else. God, whatever you bring, just bring it and I'll be just fine because you're the center of all that I am. And so how do you position yourself to be one who obeys immediately? Those four things can be helpful. But I'll just say for every one of us, it doesn't matter who we are, where we've been, what we've done, how long we've been a follower of Christ, if we know what God wants us to do and we put off that obedience regardless of the area, it will cost us. And more often than not, it will impact others around us. Paul was two years in a prison because one man had all the information he needed and would not do what was right when he needed to. We're soon to recognize the 100-year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, April 10, 1912. You know the details of that story. The Titanic set sail from Northampton, headed towards the States. It was the largest luxury liner of its day. No one had ever seen anything like that. In fact, it had been billed as the ship that even God himself could not sink. It set sail from Northampton, headed towards the States with over 2,200 passengers on board. As it steamed across the North Atlantic, it began to receive messages, up to six, history tells us, that warned them of ice in the region through which they were passing. The tragedy is not necessarily that those warnings were ignored because we know that they were received, we know that they were acknowledged. However, in at least one case, the warning that came across the wire of ice in the, in the, uh, in the vicinity was pulled from the sheet and posted five hours after it came in. Ignoring the warning was not the issue. Putting it off was the reason that 1,523 lives sank to their death that night. Not because of ignorance, but because of simply pushing off until later what was right. I don't know where God has put his finger in your life. I don't know what he's calling you to do. I don't know what step of obedience you need to make. How it relates to your marriage. Listen to me. How it relates to your finances. How it relates to relationships. Maybe for you the the call that God's placing in your life right now. Is to turn from your sin and to find your savior in the person of Jesus Christ. And the option remains there for you to push him off and do it later. But as for those 1,523 people. Perhaps the same for you, later may never come. So choose to obey today. Let's pray. Lord, I I would suspect that many of us have had our lives impacted because someone else did not do what was right when they should have. And so we know this truth we've suffered, we've been hurt because another person did not obey immediately. Nothing we can do to change that. We trust ourselves to your grace, knowing that your healing is perfect. But Father, today we may find ourselves as one on the other side of the fence, that it's we who need to make the choice. To do what you've called us to do. Lord, it may look different for every single person here. But I believe for many, there's an area of their lives where you've put your finger. You've spoken truth. You've shown them everything they need to know to do what's right and to obey. And yet, to this point at least, they've chosen to put you off. And without even realizing it, perhaps, others have suffered because of that. Lord, you tell us what to do because you love us. Your will is best. Not always easy, but always best. You know us better than we know ourselves. And so, Lord, where you speak into our lives, I pray that we would be people who are responsive to follow immediately. That we would position ourselves to grow into the image of Christ to where we, it just becomes a part of who we are. We just, by nature, obey. when you tell us to. And so, Lord, whatever decisions are made today for those that are here, I pray that they would make the right choice. Maybe a stake can be driven in the ground this morning of those who know what's needed. And today, before they leave, they will commit to you in prayer. Lord, I get it. And I'm going to do what's right. And so, Father, lead us, we pray. and Guide us. And for those that need a Savior today, May they understand that that Savior will only be found in the person of Jesus. And so give them the courage today not to put it off another day. That day may never come. But to turn from their sin today and to invite Jesus to literally come in and to take over. So much more than just saying words to a prayer. Lord, may it today be a surrender of one life to you. So bless these decisions we ask. For it's in Jesus' name. Amen.